Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on a move. I'm Corey Johnson. This is episode number 201. And we just keep on going. And just ahead, have we found the Costco of Central America? Plus, Diamondback Energy explains what they're willing to sell in the Permian Basin. And a deep dive on the business of diabetes, we drill down on Imbecta which could have a game-changing device in its hands. We'll talk to CEO Dev Kurdikar, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, not least of which... Includes iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, LastFM, Deezer. Yeah, all those things. But if you hit the subscribe button on any of those services, you'll be sure to catch every show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We explain the business stories behind stocks and a move. Joining me as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, I got some uh, Twitter messages and emails from uh, listeners wanting to know if I had, in fact, gone for date night at Dave and Buster's, as promised on our 200th episode. And what's the answer? No, I am still in that relationship because they haven't fucked it up by going ahead to Dave and Buster's on date night. Yeah, it's just, I'm I'm glad you came to your senses. Yet. I'm sure I'll screw it up some other way, but not, not yet. Over and over again, I think. Corey, what, do you, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, I want to look at uh, Diamondback Energy, which has one of the great tickers of all time. Yes, it does. Diamondback Energy trades under FANG, F-A-N-G. And uh, FANG shares have climbed over 10% the last month and are 4% higher in a year. What's going on with FANG? Well, Diamondback Energy uh, is, has announced that it's looking to sell some of its... Uh, wells in the Western Permian Basin. Uh, these are what they're calling non-core assets. Of course, they say that when they're selling them. They didn't say that when they're buying them. Remind us where the Permian Basin is, especially uh, the Western part. Yeah, Texas uh, bleeding into uh, New Mexico um, and, and also importantly into Mexico as well. It's something that's not often discussed. But, but uh, the Permian Basin uh, uh, is a place that with the modern techniques of drilling for oil, that is to say very deep, um, sometimes 8,000, sometimes even uh, further, 8,000 feet or more deep, and horizontal wells uh, that are fracked in many, many stages, 10 stages or, pl- or more. Um, a very, very robust area for drilling for oil, uh, some of the best in the world. 
and um, uh, these guys saying they're going to get out of the Permian Basin, or at least some of the Permian Basin. Um, and the timing doesn't seem accidental for them to come out. So uh, uh, Bloomberg's uh, Rachel Butt, uh, reporter at Bloomberg, uh, broke the story that they're looking to sell some of these assets. And the timing, you know, this is right after uh, Oventive paid $4.3 billion to acquire some end cap uh, portfolio companies. Uh, OPEC production cut drove prices up, uh, gives a little more certainty on uh, near-term oil prices at least. Um, KeyBank uh, has a really good analyst who covers uh, this company, Diamondback, as well as some others. Um, and he, th this analyst actually went through a lot of these companies a few, well, I think it was a few weeks ago, put out an interesting note where he looked at the productivity. So um, uh, one of the features of fracking, right, one of the features of these horizontally drilled wells is that they have a lot of oil. Yeah, a lot of oil. But, and it comes on really fast. So, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, uh, most new wells, when they were conventionally drilled 30 years ago, might give you 300 barrels a day, 500 barrels a day. Um, th these wells, some of these uh, fracked wells will give 1,000 or 1,200 or 1,500 or 2,000 barrels a day, like just a lot of oil um, right when they're drilled. But, you know, just like if you if you shake up a Coca-Cola bottle and open up the top and it squirts out like crazy, it doesn't keep coming like that for a long time, right? It slows down. So the, the, the declination of the um, uh, uh, production from the well uh, is the big difference maker. It's not what you get on the first day, it's what you get over time. And the Diamondback wells, according to the, well, the information they've released and the comparisons done by KeyBank, the Diamondback wells have a real strong productivity uh, versus a degradation seen by uh, the average Permian company. So these are really good wells. It's a long way of saying that the wells that, per, that these guys are looking to sell um, might be some of the best ones in the Permian Basin, even in the Western Permian Basin. Um, and so I wanted to see what the company had said in the in the recent past. They didn't comment about the Bloomberg story uh, that was out this week talking about the, their desire to sell these, quote, non-core assets. But I wanted to see what they had to say in recent weeks about that. In their last earnings call, their CFO, uh, Matt Van Hoof, uh, Diamondback CFO, talked about um, some of the, the uh, exploration production asset sales, the wells, the E&P assets that they'd sold um, uh, in the last quarter might give a clue to what they're about to sell in the next quarter. Um, and so uh, here is indeed uh, the Diamondback Chief Financial Officer, Matt Vanthoff. I think we announced you know, two uh, E&P asset sales, non-core asset sales this quarter that, that I think fit the mold of what uh, the market looks like right now. And that's, you know, assets that don't compete for capital in our capital plan, you know, for many, many years. And, you know, a little bit of PDP associated with those assets, but generally a, a buyer that is looking to develop those assets a lot faster than, than we're planning. And so, you know, these two deals, the, the buyers are going to, you know, get aggressive developing these two assets right away, which, um, you know, in, in a capital allocator's um, it's just good capital allocation from from our perspective. You know, going into it, we expected to sell more midstream assets, um, you know, than E&P assets. So that's why we bumped the target. And you know, we still have some strategic uh, midstream investments that are nearing uh, the point where they should be, you know, monetized. Uh, Gray Oak, I think, was a great example. We retained all of our commercial benefits of the of the transaction. You know, we still move our barrels to the Gulf Coast. It's just that from a financial perspective, the pipeline was a great investment. It worked, and uh, we monetized it to the partners. So I'd expect more uh, more on the midstream side. We did highlight 
what we have from a midstream perspective in the deck for the first time. Um, but, you know, we're going to be patient and uh, prudent when, when it comes to selling assets. So they say they're going to be patient. Now, those midstream assets are interesting, right? So it's not just the wells that they're looking to sell. They might be looking to sell some pipeline businesses as well. Um, and, and we'll see how this, uh, what becomes of this, if anything. But certainly that Bloomberg story has got to have uh, investment bankers knocking on their door looking to buy some of these assets. Corey, what is your next drill down? Why don't look at a company we haven't looked at before, Price Smart. Price Smart uh, trades under PSMT, and PSMT shares have jumped 9% over the past five days. Uh, still almost 7% lower, though, if you're looking at a 12-month chart. Uh, what is Price Smart? Well, you, it, it, is a, it is a warehouse club focused mm -hmm. on, you know, a la Sam's Club, a la Costco, focused on Central America and, and South America um, uh -huh. and the Caribbean. Um, and well, I should say specifically Central America, the Caribbean and Colombia. Um, and they are the largest operative warehouses. Now it's got this great name, right? Price smart. You think that's because it's about prices. No, it's the price family that started this business. Now the price family in the fifties in San Diego started a company called FedMart, which was very successful and eventually, uh, sold that business. Uh, that company got to sales in the seventies in 43 States of about $350 million. That was a big business. Yeah. Later, they started a company called Price Club in the 70s. And that grew to about 100 before they sold that business to create a company out of the Pacific Northwest called Costco. Ah. And merged those stores into Costco. So now in 1996, they founded a company called Price Smart. Founders, the Price family, once again, uh, the old man and the kid. I hope they wouldn't be offended by that, but if they would... You're welcome to come on the show and defend their uh, relative ages. In any case, um, the Price family added again with this this business that they know so well that they've been doing for you know 70 years. Uh, this discount warehouse business, whatever uh, they have, uh, they are growing steadily. Uh, they are uh, growing profits steadily. It's not a huge growth story, but they're tacking on businesses one after the next. Uh, they've just announced plans to open their sixth warehouse club in Guatemala. Um, they've got clubs uh, in Colombia, as I mentioned. Um, uh, they're experimenting with smaller clubs. This, they bought this land in, or leased this land in Guatemala um, that will uh, be a five-acre property that they're going to open in the fall of, of this year. Um, by the time, once that club's open, they'll have 53 warehouse clubs, again, as I say, in Central America, the Caribbean, and uh, Colombia. Um, and, you know, Pretty good earnings, 10% revenue growth, 11% operating income growth, um, sales, mer net merchandise sales up 8%. So uh, this is a, a steady eddy grower that's tacking on new businesses um, and, and really uh, doing it in a way that seems like they're really focused on each individual store. Uh, Chairman Robert Price was on the most recent call. The company is without a CEO at the moment, uh, but Chairman Robert Price seems to have the reins in his hands. Uh, and he talks about, you know, how the things that he learned from his father who was doing this in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and 90s uh, taught him so much about how the business works. Here's Chairman Robert Price. Something to understand about the margin approach in the club business, and I was taught this by my father even back to FedMart days, is that uh, you have to price the merchandise as if you're buying it right. And one of the challenges we have in Colombia, this really relates to the imports. 
where we where we're struggling because the imports are most impacted by um, by the currency, and also because imports give us the greatest differentiation with competitors. We have very sophisticated competitors in Colombia. Is the fact that because we have not been generating the volume on the imports, we haven't been landing them at the prices that I think we could land them at if we had the volume. So it's part of the the approach in terms of becoming more competitive on the imports is to increase the volume so that the uh, the buying can improve, the distribution and freight can improve, and that we continue to differentiate ourselves from competitors and, and strengthen our market position for the long haul. So yeah, they know how this business works. They've taken this model to uh, Central America, Colombia, and the Caribbean, and uh, it's a steady eddy grower that looks like something that we might want to keep an eye on. Um, I'm not saying it's actually the next Costco. It might be. Who knows? I mean, but uh, well, they uh, were the first Costco. Yeah. So why not? (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, this the Price family seems like a a family we should be paying attention to, and I'm definitely going to be hounding them to come on the show. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Kura Sushi. Kurush Sushi trades at her KRUS and shares have gained over 3% in the past month and have risen 23% over the past 12 months. Have you been to a Kura Sushi? There are a bunch of them in the Los Angeles area. I haven't, and I've actually never heard of them. And yeah, I, so eat, I, eat a lot of su- I eat a lot of sushi, so and, I'm and, glad to hear and, about it. Uh, it's a revolving sushi bar. That's the their tagline. It's based out of Irvine, California, although they have a Japanese-speaking uh, CEO, which makes the conference calls interesting. Um, but they've got a bunch of stores in um, uh, LA region, a little bit in, you know, around Irvine as well, San Diego, Arizona, Nevada, Washington State, uh, Texas, Michigan, Illinois. Looking at the map of all the places, I think there's one store in Massachusetts, one in the uh, uh, New Jersey area. They're looking at New York and Pennsylvania and, and North Carolina, Minnesota, Colorado. You know, so they're they're spreading out gently across the country. They're actually opening stores at an increasing pace. Um, in in 2022, they opened 40 stores uh, compared to, I don't know, 2021 it was 30 and the year before that was 25. So they're opening up more and more stores to add to a growing base in this business. Uh, it's a restaurant growth story. And as you mentioned, the stock has performed fantastically. And yeah. one of the, the interesting things is just the marketing um, tricks that they're at. One of their most successful promotions last year in this business was a tie-in with this popular manga book, um, and and later uh, a TV series. Isn't it Demon manga? Slayer. Isn't it, Is it manga? manga? Yeah. I don't know. I uh, owing to my youth, I try to avoid the long A's. I used to say <laughs> I used to accidentally say Nasdaq. What? Is that your, is that a Michigan thing or what is it's that? A, no, it's like, it's a, it's a Rochester, New York thing that sounds like a Chicago thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's not pretty. NASDAQ. All right, let's no, get I back to, to that, had to get that beaten out of me. Let us consult with the Merriam Webster's dictionary online, m-w.com, one of my favorite websites. They will play the sound for us and it is manga. There well, we have it. There manga. you go. I stand, I stand corrected. So the manga books uh, and later cartoon series, uh, Demon Slayer, the Demon Slayer promotion. Are you familiar with this one? I am. I am familiar with Demon Slayer. You said or Demon? Demon. Come on. (laughs) Wait. How? How do you know of Demon Slayer? 
I mean, you can't pronounce manga, but you know about Demon Sailor? Manga, uh, you mean? Slayer? Yeah. Sure. Uh, manga is just the people I hang out with. I don't know. Demon Slayer, I'm just in our social consciousness, right? I mean, it's, I don't know. Well, it's a, it's a big manga series, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, their Demon Slayer promotion last year was a huge part of their growth. It drove the comp store sales fantastically. Uh, when asked oh. about plans for the next Demon Slayer promotion, they warned, well, it might not be as big as last year, uh, but it might be. And they're working on a bigger deal with DC <laughs> Comics. And so the question is asked, it's answered by the Japanese CEO and then uh, then uh, translated by Benjamin Porton, the VP of Investor Relations, um, uh, translating for the CEO, Hajime Yuba. Um, but uh, here is their their plans uh, for uh, Kurosushi and Demon Slayer. I'm sure you remember we did Demon Slayer in July and August of last year. Comps in that quarter were 28%, 14% from traffic. Certainly not entirely driven by Demon Slayer, but it, it was a major component of one of our most successful quarters ever. In terms of this April's Demon Slayer, it, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be the same format largely where we have the 15 plates and you get a prize. We'll have giveaways like shirts and tote bags, et cetera. One thing that is counterintuitive and is tremendously exciting. So I, I, I was speaking with the uh, marketing director the other day and they, they mentioned that the second campaign can actually be more successful than the first campaign. And you wouldn't expect that, but what happens is that you're, you're able to, you know, because Demon Slayer is such a big property, you expand your fan base because, through Demon Slayer with the first campaign. And then when you have that second campaign, you, you start with that bigger starting base. And so uh, we're, we're very excited for, for what Demon Slayer can do for us. And uh, as Jimmy mentioned during the, uh, the opening remarks, I've been sort of alluding to this in, in past calls, but we are working with uh, DC Comics and that's gonna be our, our, our first, you know, really major mainstream American property. And I, I'm tremendously excited for that. So tremendous excitement about manga, driving sales of sushi, and as you mentioned, Isaac, a, a growth stock that is growing really quickly, uh, at least in the last year, um, and, and a company that we will, another one we're going to keep an eye on. Yeah, I love this tie-in. I had no idea, and um, I felt like I'm pretty familiar with the comic book world, and I definitely eat a lot of sushi, and I live in L.A., so you would think I would know. But now well, I Dave, do, thanks to this Dave podcast. Buster's, if Dave and Buster's date night is a fail, maybe I'll rescue myself with a, a Demon Slayer night. Let's just or say this. Or further doom my relationship. For the record, of Dave and Buster's date night with your girlfriend will be a fail. That will be a, no no offense to Bust, but Dave and Buster's. It's just not for your girlfriend. It will be a fail. I do think, though, that this sushi restaurant, Kura Sushi, could be a win. Maybe we'll find out. Yeah. All right, taking a hard turn here. We're going to dig into the diabetes business. Uh, diabetes is a tremendous problem affecting uh, millions of people in America, hundreds of millions of people all over the world. And uh, uh, there's a real business around it, and it's changing. Uh, and it's changing around diagnosis, and it's changing around the sadness of the growth of this uh, disease. But there's a company that's benefiting from that. Uh, Imbecta is helping people deal with their diabetes globally. And seeing their business change, it's an interesting uh, conversation, I think, and an interesting company, and just the right time to talk to Dev Kritikar, the CEO of Invecta, right after this. 
The Drill Down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by Dev Kurtikar. He's the CEO company called Imbecta. You know that Imbecta sounds like one of those stupid names that came up from a consultant firm, and maybe it did, Dev, but it actually makes a lot of sense because you spun out of some companies that mumbled, might sound like Imbecta, from Becton Dickinson Company. That's right, and actually, first of all, Corey, thanks for having me, but Imbecta, yeah. you know, we, we went through a pretty long process that involved um, our global employee base, uh, we spoke with a lot of customers, and the name Embecta actually has a specific meaning. The Becht, as you pointed out, actually, you know, is the tip of the hat to Becton Dickinson. Uh, we were part of Becton Dickinson for, you know, 97 years before we spun off, right? So, so that's where Becht comes from. And the word M that we put in front of Becht uh, is is really, you know, something that we try to, you know, pra- put in practice, right? We want to. Uh, we have empathy with the people that have diabetes. We want to empower our workforce. And so there are a lot of good words that start with them. So that's how Embecta came together. So uh, what you, so you mentioned diabetes. So that's that's the business here. So you guys are involved in, um, uh, you wouldn't have thought that this could have become a controversial business lately, but it is, uh, which is sort of helping the delivery process for insulin for the uh uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have diabetes um, all over the world. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, almost 500 million people all over the world have diabetes, right? Uh, many of them are not diagnosed and the diagnosis rates are increasing. And it's often referred to as a global epidemic, if you will. Um, what we do, Corey, is we make insulin injection devices. So if you're a person with type 1 diabetes, or if you're a person with type 2 diabetes that requires insulin, right? You need to inject insulin sometimes once a day, sometimes more than once a day. And it's truly a life-saving, life-sustaining therapy. We don't make insulin, but we make pen needles and syringes that are used to deliver insulin um, you know, to, to the, into the body. Now, uh, the, the price of insulin has become a... Um, uh, uh, a problem in America. Um, it, it is. Uh, it's. It wasn't very profitable business. The number of providers of this have shrunk quite a bit. There's been a big political movement uh, to uh, to fix that problem to regulate the price. Where does the cost lie in an insulin treatment, in an insulin pen, or or other delivery devices? Yeah, is it I in mean, the insulin itself? Is it in the devices that you it make? Is, is it, it is in the insulin. Broader view, Corey, right? A lot of people with diabetes often have other comorbidities uh, as well, right? Uh, and so these are these are folks that need care besides just insulin therapy. And so there is a pretty significant, if you will, a global economic burden of treating for somebody with diabetes and caring for somebody with diabetes. But but certainly from an insulin delivery standpoint. The, the, the products that we make, uh, we don't believe are large contributors of the total spend on a diabetes patient. So uh, you mentioned let's, let's, a bunch of things I want to talk about here. So you mentioned diagnosis. 
um, uh, the in your industry, there was a lot of talk about diagnosis because uh, estimates are as much as 50% of the people who have diabetes are not diagnosed and don't know that they have a problem. And often the people who are eventually diagnosed have been living with it for five, seven, 10 years before they get that diagnosis. What What's happening in your industry to change that, to get people diagnosed, which is good for people and, and shocker, good for business? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, first, I just want to dis distinguish type one from type two, right? Type two is often yeah, diagnosed yeah. in early age because it's an acute sort of, you know, sometimes these symptoms are acute and you get diagnosed there, right? Because if you don't get insulin, essentially you don't survive. So that diagnosis, those diagnosis rates tend to be high. Uh, type two is where the diagnosis rates often sort of fall back. And type two, as you know, is a progressive disease, right? You start with sort of diet and lifestyle modifications, then oral medications, then other injectable drugs before you move to insulin. Um, and that's where sort of the diagnosis sometimes gets delayed. And, and honestly, it's no different in my mind, Corey, from, you know, a lot of other ailments and diseases that people have, right? They don't often get diagnosed in time. What we try to do, certainly in, in developed economies like, like the U.S., is we work a lot with healthcare providers, with advocacy organizations, and we have a lot of educational tools and programs that are out there that are essentially encouraging people to you know, understand what the symptoms are. If you see the symptoms, you know, get diagnosed. The bigger diagnosis problem is actually outside the U.S. I mean, if you just step back, we started by saying yeah, yeah, yeah. 100 million people, right? Most of the growth in the number of people with diabetes is going to be in emerging markets, right? And where there, you know, the rates of diagnosis are certainly much less than the U.S., but as economies grow, as people get access to healthcare, you know, that's when the rates of diagnosis will rise and eventually they'll have access to insulin as well. How do you measure the success of those programs that you, that you are engaging in? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, given the scale of the program, honestly, it's, I, I wouldn't say we're going to move the needles significantly in diagnosis rates, right? So what we try to do, do is that, partner do you, to, do you get to use that pun often? Move the needle, really? We're talking about insulin injections. I try. Okay, you're trying to move more needles. We understand that. Yeah, <laughs> we try to move a lot of needles as well. Um, what we try to do, honestly, is partner locally um, in many countries around the world with local organizations, and that will sort of amplify. So we help amplify their efforts, if you will, versus going direct to patient or direct to consumer. So what's happening to change your business in the last, uh, so uh, it seems to me that that the introduction of generics next year, probably 2024, is really gonna change uh, the demand curve for you, or, or no. Are people getting diabetes regardless of the cost because they need to, oh, sorry, getting diabetes, getting uh, insulin injections because they have to have them to survive, so maybe uh, the lowering of cost doesn't really change demand at all. Yeah, listen, I mean, first of all, the lowering of the increasing access to insulin, right, more broadly, whether it's by lower cost or by other forms of, you know, government or, or regulatory body intervention, I mean, is essentially going to allow people to manage their diabetes more properly, right? Because what you hear of, of often is that people will skip a dose, they won't take as many doses as they need. And, and diabetes is a progressive disease, right? So, the less careful you are about how you're treating it, the worse it's going to get over time. So we, you know, certainly from our perspective, 
people having access to insulin is is a good thing for society in general, right? Now, with respect to our business, look, we make 8 billion units a year, 8 billion injection devices a year, and we sell in more than 100 countries around the world, right? So it is likely to be a benefit, but Corey, I'm going to say, you know, likely to be, be a very modest benefit that, you know, will take a number of years before you actually see it in the numbers, just given the scale of the, the and the geographic dispersity of our business. But there will be some benefit. Interesting. I mean, because you're doing about a billion, you know, better than a billion dollars a year in revenue. But you do think that there will be a, a multi-year uh, a, a second step to your growth curve? Well, but yes. But I think, again, we got to put it in context of, so if you just step back and say, besides access to insulin, how is diabetes treatment changing, right? Insulin, as you may know, has been now used to treat uh, diabetes for almost 100 years, right? And over the past 20, 30 years, there have been, you know, I would say three major advancements. One is obviously delivery of insulin using insulin pumps, right, advanced technology. The advent of continuous glucose monitoring, right, that's helping people understand where their glucose levels are. And, and the introduction of new drugs, uh, many of them for type 2 that, you know, potentially delay the need for insulin. So, you know, just to have a balanced view on this, right, I mean, there are some headwinds as well because people may need insulin a little bit later, as well as some of them may use more advanced technology. But that's really a U.S. issue. If you go outside the U.S., even in other developed markets, certainly in emerging markets, which is where the number of people with diabetes is projected to grow disproportionately, that's a very bread and butter injection devices market. And I would say just the increase in the number of you know, people getting diagnosed the underlying base population is increasing. The GDP per capita is increasing. That's a much bigger tailwind for us in terms of, you know, just growth, organic growth of our core business. And this is all, core besides what we're trying to do, which is to add more products to our portfolio. Sure. Well, let's talk about that. So um, th- maybe one of the biggest innovations in the 100-year-old the business of injecting uh, diabetes patients with insulin are these CGMs, the continuous glucose monitoring devices. And um, I wonder, um, as the CGM business has changed so much in the last five years um, uh, and becoming kind of a standard of care and people with those little devices that they kind of wear constantly to monitor um, uh, their glucose levels, um, how has that changed your business and what's, what does that mean for your industry? I know you're not specifically in the CGM business, yeah. but those continuous glucose monitoring devices have allowed people with diabetes to to better manage their life, not have to prick their fingers all the time or whatever. Um, uh, it's a different business. It is a different business, right? I mean, again, I, the way I view it is anything that's allowing people to either have access to therapy or in this case, CGM, really understand where their glucose levels are so they can dose themselves appropriately with insulin to control their glucose levels. I mean, it certainly is a good thing for society but also helps us in the sense of it increases awareness for you know, the right dosage of insulin administration at the right time, right? So, so that's certainly an advancement. But the other advancement that has occurred that you know, we are particularly interested in pursuing ourselves through an internal R&D program is the delivery of insulin using advanced technology, right? Insulin pumps, both the tube pumps, the pumps as yeah, well yeah. as the patch pumps. So talk to me about that. Where are you guys in that industry? So what we have, we have an internal R&D program that's uh, that's being developed under the breakthrough device designation of the FDA on a patch pump. And that pump 
is being targeted towards type 2. Type 2, people with diabetes have distinct and different user needs from type 1. A simple example is type 2s need more insulin per day on average than type 1. And so we are designing the patch pump specifically for type 2, you know, and it'll use some of the advantages that we have, right? I mean, our products today, our core injection products today, are all or mostly delivered through a retail channel, retail pharmacy channel. A patch pump can be delivered through a retail pharmacy channel as well. So it's a multi-year program, Corey. We are in the midst of it. Uh, we haven't publicly disclosed any timelines yet, uh, but that's an interesting, it's, it's a very attractive area for us because a lot of the people that will eventually use a pump are likely using our product today, right? And when, right. when, when type two diabetes progresses to a point where they actually need multiple daily injections and are willing to consider a pump, we wanna have an offering for them. But is that a is that a two year program? Is that a ten year program? Like ballpark, what what does that kind of look like? I mean, is is it you're you're not completely reinventing the wheel here? Well, we are in the sense of I mean, remember the reason we got the breakthrough device designation is because you know clearly a breakthrough device, right? And what makes it unique is it's type two. It's going to be a closed loop type two. So using using an algorithm, right? Um, the way we are thinking about the program is we'll initially have an open loop product, which is essentially doesn't need to input data directly from a CGM, then do a clinical trial with integrated with CGM data, and then launch a closed loop. Um, look, with, with respect to the timeline, I, I, I respectfully, Corey, I don't want to go, go any further. This is an area of interest, intense interest, so I want to just stick to comments I've made publicly. Here's, here's what I will say, though. What we have said publicly, when we did the spin, uh, now a year ago, we held an investor day and we laid out some guidance you know, for the street through 2024. What we did say was we didn't include any revenue from the patch pump through 2024. Okay, good information. Well, we'll look forward to that and that development of that device uh, could be a real game changer for you guys and maybe much more importantly, um, the people who are suffering from type two diabetes. But Dev Kurtikar is the CEO of Vibacta. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Corey. All right, coming up next on the Drill Down the Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Invecta. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And hey, if you're enjoying the Drill Down podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review. Let the rest of the world know what you like about the Drill Down podcast. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. I want to talk about the, uh, the as you can tell, I've been doing a deep dive into the world of diabetes um, uh, and, and how pervasive it is and how much it's growing. Uh, there's a group called the International Diabetes Federation, and they do a lot of work studying the disease, studying the international, as the name might suggest, uh, of nature of this disease. And the, this, the International Diabetes Federation uh, says there are about five, four, 537 million adults living with diabetes uh, in 2021. But I wanted to look at how many, uh, as we talked about, are undiagnosed. So diabetics who have not had the disease diagnosed yet, because the, the diabetes is getting worse. It's, it's growing about a couple percentage points, you know, single digit percentage points every year uh, internationally. And that's the expectation uh, going forward from the International Diabetes Foundation. But 
it's the the opportunity for growth for the Invecta business or the opportunity, uh, if you want to put a positive spin on it, and I do, the uh, opportunity for um, uh, expanding the market of treatment, helping more people get the help that they need means diagnosis. So it raises the question, what percentage of diabetics in the world don't know that the thing they're suffering from is diabetes? I'm going to guess 50%. Uh, it's not quite that big. Here's your number, the drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. 32.5% of diabetics in the world don't know that the thing they're suffering from is diabetes. So if wow. more people can get diagnosed right. for the diabetes that they have and get the treatment that will help them, that would be great for Imbecta's business. And, and also, by the way, great for these people and great for the product, uh, productivity and happiness of our global yeah, society. I was going to say great for society. I mean, like, yeah. let's get people diagnosed. Get them that relief. Um, and, and that's, you know, and that's a big uh, hurdle for Invecta. If they're only going to grow with a single digit percentages of the diagnosed patients um, in the world, uh, their growth will be limited to that. But if they can uh, actually grow faster by having more people get diagnosed and get the help that they need and then come with this new product to market, if they get approval for this device, um, this could be a really interesting company. Uh, that would really see its growth, I would think, uh, really explode. That 30, that 30% you mentioned, Do you? is there a sense of where they are geographically? Yeah, great question. 32.5%. Uh, um, much more in uh, the Pacific Islands and in Asia. Um, uh -huh. the, the rates, according to the study, and now I'm going by memory, but I think I've got it right, which is it went somewhere from anywhere from 20% to as high as over 70% of the diabetic population that was undiagnosed depending on what country you were, how wealthy the people are. Shocker, the poorer the people were, the more rural they were. And in Asia, uh, they were less, and, and in the Pacific Islands, they were the least likely to be diagnosed uh, for the diabetes that they have and suffer from. Well, that begs the question, is Invecta positioned in a way that they're able to capitalize on that to help to serve those needy populations? Are they there? Do they have a footprint, a partner? Can I, can I, can I give the, uh, the TV answer? Yes. Time will tell. Time will um, tell. They they say that they are. They say that they're focused on those areas. You heard a little bit of that in the interview. Yeah. Um, but we'll, time will tell if they really are and are able to seize uh, this opportunity and give people, the like I said, the help that they need. All right. Well, we appreciate your time listening to the Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson, our editor, who does an extraordinary job of putting this show, stitching it all together. And we make it hard effects. for him. We make it real yes, hard for him. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, dear listeners. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.